Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Chloe. Good evening. I'm Chloe. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi. Hi. Um, I did this about a year ago, so I have notes to try to face a few different things that I remember I went home the evening after I shared, and I forgot that, and I forgot that, and I forgot that. So maybe I'll forget it again tonight, but I, I'll try not to. Um, I have been in um, OA since August of 2003, so I guess I'm coming up this year on 10 years in program, um, which is wild. Uh, And that also means that I came in very young. I was um, 18 going on 19. Um, I was coming off of my first summer home from college. Um, I had been uh, a a food lover for most of my childhood and a body obsessor for most of my teenagehood um, and had begun to get to that point where the food stopped working and was making me miserable more often than not, Um, but I couldn't stop. And I definitely felt like a freak because I had no idea that there were other people who did this, Um, did what I did. My dad's in AA and has been since I was... I think around 10, um, I remember going with him to get his two-year chip. Um, And so I knew about 12-step programs. I knew a little bit about alcoholism, but I had no idea that there was such a thing for people like me. But my mom found out about it. She observed that there was some sort of similarities in the way I acted around food, and particularly in, I think also just like my personality in general is similar to my dad's. Um, I, you know, somewhat obsessive, self-conscious, um, anxious, and, and then that it was particularly manifesting around food and, and body. And I experimented with anorexia and bulimia, and then I also just had this kind of low-bottom eater tendency. Um, and I've done most of the things that uh, in the step one, where it, when it lists off a lot of the crazy things we've done, I've done the frozen food, the burnt food, the spoiled food, the food out of the trash, um, I had the nickname of trash picker when I went to summer camp because I would, you know, somebody throw away half of a bag of something. It's like, what do you mean? (laughs) And I still, I have to be honest, there are days when I see like a piece of food that someone has left somewhere and I, like the thought crosses my mind to pick it up and eat it. And I don't, but that's that's just how I'm wired. I don't, I don't know why. I, you know, I didn't learn it from anybody in my family, but, um, but whatever, I inherited the addict gene and then some weird combination of, I don't know what else, sort of made it manifest in this particular way. Um, my mom's a little bit of a restrictor. I have an aunt who almost died of anorexia, but that I don't know why I ended up a compulsive overeater. But there it is. I, that's who I am. Um, 
And I was, my aunt came to visit me recently, and she's type 1 diabetic. And it's a regular, I, I don't have experience personally with diabetes, but being with her for like 48 straight hours and watching her have to monitor her blood sugar and take her insulin, and, and I was thinking like she gets a daily reprieve from the symptoms of her diabetes because she actively takes care of it every day, and I have to do the same. Um, it's a totally different kind of disease, and I don't want to minimize having diabetes um, by drawing the comparison, but it's that same principle of, She doesn't get to take her insulin once and then be done for the rest of the week. Um, And so for me to get a daily reprieve of my addiction to food, I have to participate in this program and um, in my step work. So, um, again, I was very much a low-bottom eater, and I was really depressed when I came into OA. um, And most of my first year, I just cried a lot um, and continued to binge um, daily. I binged... um, I would sort of wake up in the morning with the classic, like, today's going to be different, and I would have this all bran and, you know, tons of coffee and try to flush my system out, and, you know, like, then I'm going to go to the gym, and I'm not going to eat anything, and then by noon or two or four or whatever, it would sort of start to unravel, and I would end up binging by the end of the day. Um, And... I was isolating a lot because of food. I was physically uncomfortable because of my overeating. Um, I, I, it was starting to tip where, like, the compensatory behaviors that I was taking were not able to make up for how much I was eating, so I was starting finally to gain weight. Um, and I, you know, would not do things because I felt uncomfortable in my body. And, um, As I said, I was home from college, and I spent that summer home from my freshman year of college just pretty much eating and isolating and going to work. And I worked a physically active job. I was a landscaper, and so I was, like, physically active all day long, but then binging every night, um, which was really uncomfortable. And uh, I alienated friendships. There were friends of mine from high school that were excited that I was home for the summer, and I just, like, would make plans and then just not show up or not call them back. Um, And I had to make amends for that later on. Um, So I I went to a meeting uh, in Maine, which is where I'm from, and uh, it was like, you know, eight uh, women in over 60. And so I walked in and thought, I don't look like them. I, you know, my life is very different from theirs. But the woman sharing was sharing about um, a particular compulsive behavior around this breakfast cereal. And I was like, binging on that breakfast cereal every morning and I um and it was such a relief to hear somebody else talking about going through an entire box of something and um to feel like I wasn't alone like I said I spent my first year just kind of crying and listening and um didn't get a sponsor until a little over a year into program um and so didn't start this working the steps right away and I just share that because everybody's different in terms of when they start the nuts and bolts of the program, and that's just what I needed. I needed to just listen, and then I started to share a little bit here and there, and I started to add another meeting a week, and it grew slowly for me. And then it took me another year to get the abstinence that I have today, which is going on eight years. Um, You know, I would have, I had 60 days on, and then I would break it on 30 days, and then two weeks, and then 30 days, and you know, it just, it took me a while to kind of uh, dig in and get, and like I said, um, really take step three and and get the abstinence that I have today, which is a daily reprieve. Um, Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is is that when I, I don't eat like a lady. That's another feature of my disease. (laughs) And it's one I still struggle with. 
Um, but when I was a kid, my mom used to say, take human bites. <laughs> because I was just like, you know, the fork wasn't big enough. The bowl wasn't big enough. I used to eat out of Tupperware because none of the bowls in our kitchen were big enough. Um, and and another thing was eating off my sister's plate. And I, I've had to, you know, I guess that's just a living amends. And we don't live together anymore. But, um, yeah, and, and that has been, like, I. that's another thing where I'll, I'll be at a table and I finish eating before everybody else because I still eat a little bit more quickly than everybody else. And, you know, there I'm staring at my empty plate. And if I'm in that kind of, like, keyed-up addict brain, I'll start, start to notice what are on other people's plates. And, like, the hand goes towards the fork. And it's like, that is not me. That's not, that's not my option today. I can't take food off other people's plates today. Thank you, God, I haven't in, you know, almost eight years. Um, so I just wanted to mention that, too. Um, so, yeah, I, I got, once I, um, I started working the steps, and I really kind of went all the way with it. I used all the tools, and I went to at least three meetings a week. Um, and I share that because I don't know what combination of them worked for me. I just know that when I did all of them, <laughs> eventually it, it fell into place. And, um, and I didn't always understand why I had to do some of these things. Um, I remember when I got to step six and seven, and there was this, my sponsor was having me write about humility. And I like, for some reason, I don't know why, I couldn't get, I didn't understand humbly asked her. Like what? Because she said, you know, break it into two parts. Break it into the humbly and then asked him to remove our shortcomings. Or in my case, it, I, higher power. Um, and she kept having me write about the humbly part. And like, I couldn't figure it out. And finally, what I, had to let, I, what I had to land on was that humble for me is doing step seven, even though I don't understand what humble means. Um, humbly is doing the step work and trusting that um, it will become clear to me over time. So there are a lot of things for newcomers that won't make any sense, and it will feel like the Karate Kid moment where you want to learn karate, but they're telling you to wax the car. But eventually, you know how to... It, I don't know why it works, but it does. It's this... And that's still true for me today. I'm obsessed about some guy, and, and you know, my sponsor says, do your laundry. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense. But when I do my laundry, I feel better. When I do my homework, I feel better. I have better self-esteem. Um... And I have less obsession about the thing I'm obsessing about. And um, so I wanted to share about that as well. Um, something I didn't share about the, the first time I spoke here was that at about five years of abstinence, or just before I got five years, um, I, I had been living in Boston, and, I, um, I had, and I'd been there my whole time of my recovery. And so my recovery was very... Uh, wrote. I had the same meetings that I went to. Like I said, I was working all the tools really sort of obsessively, but it, which was working at the time um, and got me, I think, the solid abstinence that I have now. Um, but then I decided to quit my job and move to Spain um, to work on a farm, and um, which was a little, well, it was exciting. But, um, but it meant that I wasn't, you know, when you're on a farm, you don't have access to a cell phone, so I couldn't make my program calls every day, and um, I wasn't going to have access to the meet, to meetings in the same way. Um, and but I, and so going into it, I was really nervous what what that was going to mean. I was going to have control over what I was eating in the same way that I had. 
Um, but I did a lot of planning going into it, and a friend of mine in program made this book that she passed around to in meetings and had people write little notes and um, quotes and things, and then I cut out all my favorite parts of the big book and pasted them in there, and so I would have a morning ritual of reading, um, either reading or reading a note from a friend while I went through, and I did a lot of meditation and a lot of prayer. Um, and I was carried by my higher power through that. And I also, um, I had my four-year medallion with me, and I, um, my friend makes jewelry, and I had her drill holes in it, and I put a leather strap around it, and I wore it everywhere I went. And um, so a lot of people were like, wow, what a beautiful bracelet when I was on the plane to Spain or whatever. Um, and then every once in a while, someone would, um, I did a little bit of traveling around the country while I was there, and um, every once in a while somebody would say, are you a friend of Bill W? And I'd say, yeah. You know, they'd be some expat in some city, and um, we'd have coffee, or um, I went to a couple meetings there. And the other amazing thing is I um, I got a, I had the willingness to get a list of, um, I went to a meeting and I got a list of people, and then I, I was on a bus from one city to another in Spain, and um, I was feeling really lonely, and I had this, like, international cell phone, and it was kind of expensive, but I said I was feeling pretty strung out and lonely and um, still abstinent, but that kind of fearful place. Um, I'd been in Spain for about two months, and I opened up this little piece of paper that I've been carrying around with me, and I called one of the numbers, um, and the woman picked up, and she was at an AA convention in, I don't remember what country, but... Um, and I, so I don't know how the call worked, but she said, it's so funny, we're taking a break from the convention, um, I think it was like world service, like worldwide world service, um, and she said, we're, we're taking a break, we're having lunch, can I, I can pass you around the table, and she passed my cell phone around the table, and people with accents from all over the world, hi Chloe, and here I am on this, the back of this bus in like the middle of nowhere Spain, and all these people talked to me, and I cried on the phone with these people who had never met me before and may never met, meet me, um, and so I shared that to say that I've been saved. I mean, you have saved my life. Um, and this fellowship, thank God, is big enough that when I'm in need, someone has been there to catch me. Um, and sometimes it's been a stranger. Um, I traveled, I, I was traveling in Colorado, and I um, had a place to stay for the first couple nights, but I didn't after that. I was going to be there to help a friend move. And um it's a long story, but we didn't have a place to stay for a couple of nights. And there was an OA newcomer in one of the meetings I went to who said, I need a house sitter and a dog sitter. Why don't you stay at my place? She'd never met me before. Um, and so, again, I, there's something magical that happens in these rooms when we all show up and commit to give each other service and we save each other. Um, so the only reason I am here with eight, almost eight years of abstinence is because of the people uh, every step of the way. Um, I've also had many sponsors. Um, so, And I share that because I've had sponsees that sometimes say, like, it's really scary to lose a sponsor. And it can be emotionally stressful to lose a sponsor, but um, I think of, like, uh, I remember the first time I watched a marathon and someone was explaining to me that sometimes people run different legs of it with you to support you. Um, and that's just been true for me in my recovery. I haven't been one of those persons, that, people that's had the same sponsor the whole way through. I've had people who've run different legs of it with me. And I've had a gazillion sponsees. You know, some people come in and decide it's not time or they need a different sponsor. And I have to not take that personally. I have to know that 
Sponsorship is a tool of the program. I am a tool that someone picks up and uses, and if they're not ready to use it, they don't use it. And that's not because I can't make anybody else abstinent. I've heard people say, um, when the sponsee is ready, the sponsor can do nothing wrong, and when the sponsee, sponsee isn't ready, the sponsor can do nothing right. So it's not <laughs> personal on either side. Um, it's it's about our higher powers. It's about grace. It's um, And again, I am a tool for someone else's recovery, and if I can be of service, great, and if not, that's totally okay. Um, Right now I'm working on my my third round of the fourth step, Um, and I'm finding it really, uh, I don't want to do it, but I want the recovery, so I have to do it. It's such a slog, and so if anybody else is working on step work that feels like a slog, it's it's a, it's one of those wax on wax off things. Like eventually it will it will help, but right now it sucks. Um, and that's been my experience so far. That the step work has set me free um, and has been central to to keeping me abstinent and to changing my relationships. Um, my relationships are deeper, more honest. I feel like I can hold my head high in them, and I'm not, like, ducking and dodging somebody because I feel guilty about something. It gives me an opportunity to make amends and live with dignity in my relationships and make more mistakes and then apologize for them, et cetera. Um, You know, the big book says when we mess up, we make amends. (laughs) So it doesn't – there's no uh, line that says we're going to get perfect in this program. Um, much to my dismay. Um, and speaking of that, when I got back from Spain, I was like, I thought I was an OA rock star. You know, I, and I remember coming back to one of my home meetings and I was getting my five-year chip and my parents came to the meeting and there was lots of people there and I qualified and, um, I totally felt like the returning soldier from war and, um, and that doesn't work. Like that, I mean, it was fine, it, whatever, it happened. But, um, again, I don't, I get a daily reprieve. I'm not an OA rock star. I am one other bozo on the bus, as they say. Um, <clears throat> and those five years don't, like, they don't mean that today's going to be abstinent if I don't work it today. Um, they make it a lot easier to be abstinent today, I will say that, because I have experience to look back on and say, whoa, I got through that abstinently. Um, like, when I was a senior in college, I had, I, because of what I needed at the time, I had to weigh and measure my food. And I was that girl. I have friends that would tell me, like, yeah, I've heard people talking about you. I was that girl in the cafeteria that, like, brought my scale and my measuring cups into the dining hall. And I was the only one that was doing that. And it was weird. I'd hold up the line, and it was uncomfortable. But I, for some, I don't know why I had the willingness to do that. I don't even know if I would be able to do it now. I suppose if I was in pain enough, I would do it. And at the time, I was in pain enough that I was willing to do that, and I did it for my whole senior year of college. Um, and, like, probably plenty of people saw it and thought, that's really weird, And but that's none of my business. Um, it's what kept me abstinent that year. And... Um, that year was so different than the previous years in college that were running around and fearful and full and uncomfortable all the time. Um, okay, I want to open up for questions soon, but uh, I guess back to this question of the 
you know, I'm not an OA rock star. I also have to remember, and, and it usually comes around again on each year anniversary, I, I find myself falling into thinking I don't need, I shouldn't ask for help because it's, like, embarrassing to ask for help as a long-timer. Um, but I've gained so much from talking to a newcomer who's, like, really in it and working all the parts of the program, and it's all new and it's all exciting. And so I can get something from that. And I, And every time I open... The big book, I hear something I haven't read before, even if I've read, read those pages over and over and over again. So um, when I'm feeling compulsive, when I'm feeling fearful, if I pick up the phone and ask for help, there is help available. Um, and I haven't grown out of that. Um, I still need help every day. Um, yeah, I think that that's... Oh, one other tool that has worked for me, um, in addition to asking for help from other people in program, is asking for help from the people that love me and um, care about me outside of the program. I've been really lucky that I've had a couple key friends in my life that, even though they don't get what it means to be an addict, they love me enough to try to understand and support. Um, And so what that looks like is um, one of my best friends, if we're going to a party, she she knows that, like, lots of food at a party can be problematic if I'm not in a centered space. And I can say, like, hey, Trevana, can, you just, can we just, like, have a little moment before we go in where I say, I'm just going to have one plate of food? Um, and she'll say, yeah, sure. I'll keep, you know, she's not going to stop me from trying to get in my way if I tried for more, but just vocalizing it to her. Or if I go out to dinner with a friend and they say, hey, let's share some nachos. And I'm like, ah. I'll eat all of them. You won't get any. Um, <laughs> the, the fact that I can say that honestly and we can laugh about it, and or if I'm at a meal and what comes to me at a restaurant is too much and I can say, hey, this is way too much. Um, I'm going to stop after this much. And my friend who, again, doesn't know what it's like to be an addict can say, I love you. Sure, that sounds great. You can be done when you're done. Um, so I just, I, I share that as a tool that has worked for me. Um, and uh, what my life looks like today is that I don't eat out of the trash and I don't eat <laughs> stale and burnt and spoiled food. And um, I am really comfortable in my body and I feel really healthy and I am healthy when I go to the doctor. Um, and my relationships uh, are richer. Um, and I have uh, a place to go where I feel at home and a set of solutions um, always available to me when I show up for them and pick up the phone or go to a meeting or open the literature. Um, And that's a miracle. Um, And I love the opportunity to witness the miracles in everybody else and to learn from everyone in this in this room and all the other rooms I've ever been in, I've been able to walk, watch people walk through really wild things. And I was talking about this in the car on the way over here that I've been able to watch so many people go through a change in their lives. And it's like they're sharing about it openly. And I'm freaking out. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. Oh, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. And it's over. Mm-hmm. And I've watched so many people do that with so many life changes that it gives it. I can look to that and go, okay, if they can do that. I can do that too. Um, so that's another really wonderful ben- benefit of the fellowship um, is witnessing people go through all different life stages. And it's a great thing about having an intergenerational fellowship is watching people go through the birth and death of pa- uh, children and parents and grandparents and loved ones and spouses and relationships and jobs. And um, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so thank you. I think I'll stop there and open it up for questions. That's a great question. So the question was, what's my relationship like with my higher power? Have I ever gotten on my knees and prayed, and how's that worked for me? Um, Getting on my knees was actually instrumental in me really taking the third step. Um, I was, like I said, my, my... my first year of sort of trying the steps in abstinence, I, I kept coming to the third step and not really being able to move through it and on to the rest of the steps because I kept breaking my abstinence. And um, and I got to a point where I was sort of exasperated and I just started taking every suggestion that came my way, which I highly recommend. <laughs> um, it, can't, it can't hurt. Um, so I, I would just try everything that people offered. And um, and then there was this, like, couple-week period where in every meeting people were – somebody was, would share about getting on their knees, and that's not uh, natural to my upbringing, or I, I don't su- subscribe to a religious tradition that has that as an aspect. So I thought it was kind of weird, but I kept hearing it, and I thought, okay, 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 I'll give it a try. Um, and again, I don't know if like that was the magic bullet, but when I started doing that, I got the abstinence that I'm still working with today. So I, I highly recommend it if you haven't tried it. it I, like I said, it can't hurt. It's worth a shot. Um, it was key because I did it before I ate. For the, I did it before breakfast. The key was getting God in before breakfast. Um, and so, and um, and at the times, I, I was talking to a friend about it before I tried it. I was like, you know, how should I do it? Do I get, you know, am I, like, upright on my knees and on the floor? You know, I didn't know what it w- could look like. And she said, it can look however you want. And I, so I sort of did this, like, my knees and then my forehead on the floor. Um, I don't know, it, it worked. And I still do it every morning. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for the question. Oh, and, and my relationship with my higher power has uh, changed a lot. Um because what I need from a higher power changes. And, I, you know, it's the same higher power because the higher, my higher power is, is somewhat infinite. And, um, but, I, you know, if, if my prayers are feeling stale or my concept of my higher power is starting to shrink and I'm starting to feel fearful, I'll reinvigorate it by writing out again, what do I need from a higher power right now? What does it look like? And sometimes it looks like the word God and sometimes it looks like, Chloe's higher self and sometimes I've shared this before it's this council of elders that laughs a lot um, and sometimes it's a river um, I really love the river analogy it it, um, it works for me so it's a shifting changing thing but it's a the key I think is the engaged relationship that's ongoing um, since my dad is in a 12-step program has our relationship changed or deepened um, or how does it inform it um, that's a tough question because my dad has been sort of out of touch with 12 steps lately. But, yes, it is absolutely a point of connection between us. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. And I, when I got into 12-step rooms and started hearing some of the slogans, I recognized them that he used to use them when I was a kid. He'd say, easy does it, or one day at a time. Um, and so, actually, uh, the language of 12 steps is very... I'm lucky in that it feels dear to me um, because of that. I was, like, primed for that early on. Um, but I feel a tenderness towards 12 steps. Um, and I a little bit better understand him now. I'm also now in Al-Anon, which is great. <laughs> so plug for that, too, if, if you need it. I've moved to Los Angeles since I got abstinent. And, and, um, and what has it been like to, to en- encounter a program in a new city? 
of all the cities I could have moved to, Los Angeles is the one to move to for program. Um, I've listened to these very podcasts uh, many times. I listened to a lot of them when I was living in Spain and didn't have access to phone calls or meetings. Um, and so I felt really, um, thank you, uh, I felt pretty confident coming here, and I had done a fair amount of traveling, um, but it was a big move, and, um, and it took me probably like six months to really feel home. Um, so I would sort of go through the motions, um, but I didn't feel um, really connected for a while. And um, that's okay. That's sort of been true for a lot of aspects of, you know, it's the fake it till you make it kind of thing. Like, I knew it was good for me. I knew I needed it. Um, and even though I didn't feel the personal connection, I still got a lot out of meetings. And, um, you know, it's my medicine. So, um, But, no, I'm really grateful to be here now. So the question is, what is my abstinence? Um, so I have three meals a day and one snack. Um, for me, I have to abstain from sugar because uh, that was a major, major binge food for me. Um, and I stay away from white flour because um, that's also a sort, of, sort of a trigger for me. Um, and that's just what works for me. Uh, like I said, I, I'm, I weighed and measured for a long time because I really needed it to rein in. I was... I could overeat on anything, including vegetables. So um, I needed to create some boundaries around my food. And I still weigh and measure, typically I still weigh and measure my breakfast because that was a historic binge time for me. And those foods can easily, my eyes can trick me. I can think I'm pouring out a cup, but I'm actually pouring out two cups. That's just the way I'm wired. So I have to, I, I usually put that boundary around that meal because it's so uh, it can be so touchy. But a lot of other stuff now I eyeball, um, and that's been that's worked for me so far. I don't know what will come of that long term, but yeah. So the question is, what happens when you eat too much of the or a little bit more than um, sort of a normal portion size of the foods that are quote unquote abstinent foods, foods that I that are green light for me? Um, yeah, that absolutely happens. Um, and I make a phone call about it. Um, or I now know, having had the experience enough times, that I can't change it. So the next step is um, the next abstinent meal. Um, and I pray for my higher power to take away the obsession. Um, and I start doing work or homework, or take a walk, or make, you know, do something else, um, and try to sort of move away from it. Um, so yeah, that happens sometimes, and uh, progress, not perfection. Yeah. How do I, so the question is, how do I take contrary action when I feel the, for me it's like that feeling like, I have to have this, or else, or else, dot, dot, dot. I don't know what the or else is. Um, so when I'm feeling that, that urge, um, I don't know the answer because I, it's other than grace, like, um, uh, grace has brought me here this, thus far. I, like, I, I don't know why I haven't eaten compulsively in between meals uh, for, eight year, for seven plus years. But I do know that I sometimes make choices that are stretching the limits within a meal. Um, and... Um, and then there are other times where I, for some, for Grace's reason, don't make that decision, even though I want to. Um, and I don't make the phone call, but somehow I sort of move away from it. Um, I think 
um, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer other than like, I've put enough sort of on a, on that given day. I may have put enough money in the bank that I, I sort of am able to get through it without taking that action. Um, and then the other thing is like, I I have enough boundaries. I also, um around my food that like there's certain timing boundaries that I've put in that I just don't violate. Um, and that helps too. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope that helps. I'm sorry. It's sort of vague. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Chloe, for your share. Um, can you talk a little, do you have like a fifth morning spiritual routine? And if you do, what is it? Thanks for the question. Um, for the first several years of my program, I did have a very fixed morning routine, and now it sort of varies. It's always on my knees, um, and then it's some combination of, um, well, sometimes I go to a really early meeting, and then I, so I get on my knees and I go to the meeting. Um, but if not, then it's some combination of either step work or reading, and sometimes meditation. I had a consistent meditation practice for about five years, and then somehow it evaporated um and so now I'm sort of off and on with that and I can tell you that when I do meditate I feel a hell of a lot better um but yeah that one isn't consistent anymore but it's always on my knees first and then some combination of a couple of tools um whether it's reading or writing right now it's my flipping fourth step (laughs) um and then my sponsee calls in the morning how transparent am I with other people outside um the normies and has that changed? Um, I follow my intuition with that one. Um, I can usually sense if a person is going to be open to it. Every once in a while I've been wrong and I've shared about the fact that I'm a compulsive overeater and they've come back with, why don't you just... And it's like, oh, bless your heart, you don't understand. <laughs> and, um, yeah, uh, you know, there's all sorts of quick fixes that have never worked for me. I've tried a lot of them. Um, but mostly, I it's, it's like an intuition thing. Like, I can feel that it's the moment. Um, with, with romantic relationships, I've had a number now since I've been in program. And um, sometimes it's right away that I share that I have certain restrictions on my food. Sometimes it's a little bit at first just saying, like, I'm allergic to certain foods. So don't, you know, like, invite me out for dinner for pizza. Um, and other times I come out, like, I, I was on, like, a second date with somebody and just, they asked, in a, they asked, the way they asked the question just made it seem like it was wide open. And I had this intuitive feeling, like, I could say, actually, I'm in a 12-step program for overeating. And it would be okay. And it was. It was really weird. Um, <laughs> he ended up being a drug addict, so that might have been why he, was, he understood where I was coming from. <laughs> um, but, uh, by the grace of God, I'm not in that relationship anymore. Um, no, I'm, I, um, and with the people that are, most of my closest relationships, people know some level of it. And, um, and some of them know enough that I'm like, hey, I'm going to a meeting right now. And it's, they, they know that it's daily a part of my life. Um, and others, they know that I don't eat sugar and flour, and they accommodate me lovingly um, and don't ask about it. And that's okay, too. Yeah. Thanks. Other questions? Oh. No. <laughs> Never. Um, the question was, do I ever deal with negative body image, and um, how do I deal with it, um, or just talk about it in general? Um I had never heard the term body obsessor before coming to um, to L.A., actually. And so thank you for 
teaching me that word, um, because it's a perfect descriptor of um, the kind of place I can go to in this disease. And it was very much a part of my disease when I was before program. Um, like painfully, I, I pulled out my own hair and cried in front of the mirror. And um, thankfully, that's, those sort of extremes are not a part of my experience daily. Um, and um, I do notice that when my food is a little bit more squirrely, my body image is worse. Um, that's a pretty direct line of connection. And when I clean up my food, suddenly my self-esteem is better. Um, and when I talk about it, both my food and my body image, both of them get cleaner and healthier, and I have more space in my head. Um, and I've had um, my mom actually reflected back to me about a year ago that when I'm anxious, my body image gets worse. Um, you know, and when I'm anxious, um, I am more inclined to overeat. So um, sometimes it's just a symptom of anxiety, and when my anxiety passes or if I treat the anxiety, it helps. Um, but that's my time, so thanks. Thank you.